It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the review show for Tuesday's episode on Britain's youth revolution with guest Jade Asim. So if you haven't listened to that, now's your chance to pause, go back and catch up. I'm Connor Pope, Deputy Editor of Progress, and as always, I'll be looking back over the past few days in politics, responding to some of your comments, flogging some high-quality prizes, and revealing the identity of a very special guest on next week's show. I'm afraid Richard Angel is not with us this week, and with Parliament in recess, neither is Alison McGovern. But I'm pleased to say that I'm joined by Stephanie Lloyd, who will be joining Progress in just a few weeks as the new Deputy Director. Podcast exclusive, I think that might be. I think it is. Stephanie, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Connor. What a week it has been. So the de facto Deputy Prime Minister is under pressure due to allegations of sexual harassment. The Foreign Secretary may have condemned a British woman to five more years in prison in a theocratic state by making a factually incorrect statement about her. The International Development Secretary has been meeting to discuss policy with other governments without telling the Foreign Office. And Theresa May's reluctance to sack any of them just shows what a dysfunctional government it is. It's been a bit balmy, isn't it? It's literally, truly remarkable. I mean, if this had been any other week with any other issue, even just one of those issues, they'd be gone. And the fact it's just stacking up and up and up just shows how weak she is as a Prime Minister. What I find most bizarre is the fact that if all three of them had been sacked, it would have been a sign of a more well-functioning government than all of them staying in place. Absolutely. And when you have three of the most senior cabinet ministers staying in place and that being a bad thing, it just has such terrible things about the way the government is. It's almost like satire is beyond now. Like, it's just every day you look at something and there's just, it's almost unbelievable. And, you know, it's only a year since another bizarre week in politics because it was an anniversary of Donald Trump's election win. You say bizarre, I say heartbreaking, but you know. (laughs) So what what were you doing on election night last year? Me and my housemates actually, in true classic feminist style, had a full-blown party for everybody pretty much that we knew would be excited. We had everything you would expect from the typical political geeks. So we had our briefings, we had our banners, I was wearing my out and ready for Hillary t-shirt. We even had sparkly Hillary transfer tattoos, which I will tweet about, uh, (laughs) and they are absolutely exceptional. And yeah, everybody was so excited and we had about probably about 30 or so people at our house and then as the night ticked on you could just see everybody going from utter 
joy and hope to just a look of despair around the room. And then by the time it was about five o'clock in the morning, I kicked everybody out of the house. God. Obviously, podcast listeners won't know this, but Stephanie did comment on this as soon as she came in. I've accidentally worn my Hillary 2016 t-shirt today. Not through any sort of feeling about this week, but just because it was the nearest t-shirt in my cupboard when I was getting dressed this morning. It's not true, Connor. You knew, <laughs> you knew that it was it was a sad day. Have you read What Happened, by the way, Hillary's memoir? I have. Well, actually, I didn't read it. I had it on audiobook because I wanted to hear the tone in Hillary's voice as she spoke in such disdain about Bernie and uh, James Comey. And it was beautiful. I, those chapters specifically are just brilliant. I think a lot of it seems to be a way of her kind of speaking to her I think, and a kind of letter to, you know, young progressives in America just to say, don't lose hope. And look, I'm a kind of normal person and I just want to carry on being involved in politics. And I found that slightly less interesting. It's the ones where actually she's being a kind of political analyst and talking about the election and what happened that I find most interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think I got the most interesting parts out of, as you say, some of that analysis. But for me as a, I'm going to proclaim relatively young woman involved in politics, in her concession speech where she said, and at no point actually had I cried up until that point that that she'd lost. And I had so much hope in the fact of seeing the first woman elected as president of the United States. And it was when she just turned around and said, you know, to all of those women out of there, like the, the level of sexism and misogyny that is still to this day piled against her as a candidate that you would just never get if she was a man was just astonishing to see her go, don't give up. And I think for me, that was one of the most powerful things. And I was really lucky actually to see her when she came to the South Bank Centre and she spoke. And actually, again, it was just such fascinating political insight in terms of her analysis of the centre left at the moment across the kind of modern world and what's going on with that and where we go from here. And, you know, it's one of the things for me that's so exciting about getting back into politics at this point. So I watched it at my flat and it was uh, it was just my brother who came around to watch it with us. He's, he's about six foot two. And about half one in the morning, he just fell asleep across my settee with me kind of sat underneath him, which was uh, not optimal. But it was also actually the first election in years and years that I'd not been working. I was actually just watching it out of interest because of my previous job at Labourlist. And so actually I found it hit me a lot more than, say, the 2015 election or even the European referendum, just because I wasn't having to be kind of switched on and uh, trying to work out what my take on it was. In fact, in the end, I did still write a piece for about 9am the following morning. And essentially, my argument was, what we've seen here is a kind of an outsider who no one thought would get anywhere near the selection, let alone the election, who didn't care about what the media said about him, who said that he was going to stand up for people that the media always ignore. And that maybe that on the back of this, if it might just be Jeremy Corbyn's time, and if it isn't his time, then he doesn't have one. And what was most interesting about that was I got text messages from people within Jeremy Corbyn's office and the kind of upper echelons of Momentum as well, who, you know, these are people that I had professional connections with as a journalist, to tell me that they completely agreed. And I thought that was so fascinating because then around New Year this year, I think someone from Corbyn's office briefed that they were going to do the kind of Trump thing. And a lot of people kind of poo-pooed it and said that it was ridiculous. Actually, that was already their thinking by the time that Trump won at 9am the next morning. I think that was when they kind of realised that actually there was something that we could do here, not necessarily with the policies, but with that style of politics. I do hope not with the policies. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think there definitely is something about this concept of 
people finally saying something. And I think that there are so many voters who just want to hear someone say an answer. And actually, whether or not they even particularly agree with it or whether they think it's true, they want someone that will stand up and go, this isn't right. And I think one of the really interesting kind of analysis that Hillary gives in the book is actually how so often she was seen as the, oh, well, yeah, actually that policy won't be particularly good and that policy won't really take us anywhere and that's maybe not affordable or the best way to do things. And actually, I think for so long, parts of particularly the centre-left have been seen as the people that will say no to things and say, no, that's not sensible enough. Whereas actually, we have phenomenally radical and progressive politics in terms of what we want to achieve. And I think now is really the time to prove that and show that. And I think that's one of the things that Hillary really takes from her defeat and really is a kind of inspiration to the next generation of progressives in terms of where we should be going with that. I think we should start looking at some of the comments that we've gotten through this week. We've had quite a bit of stuff about votes at 16, mainly disagreeing with me after I put forward the case that 16-year-olds should not have the vote. Sinjin2000, who long-time listeners will remember, won a centrist dad t-shirt all the way back in the first review episode got back in touch to say that he was in favour of votes at 16. Uh, we also had an email in from Phil saying he agreed with giving votes to 16 and 17 year olds. However, until the Labour Party is willing to oppose Brexit fully and totally, which is also capitalised, <laughs> and stop sitting on the fence trying to get elected with voters of Leavers and Remainers, then they're failing to represent any kind of progress. Uh, Jack Clark tweeted to say that he's an undergraduate and believes that there is real room for centre-left politics in the student movement. It just needs some passionate advocacy you were a student politician for a while, weren't you? I was, Connor. I was. Did you bring passionate advocacy to the centre-left at the time? I like to think so. I certainly like to think so. And actually, this goes on quite well to the next comment, which was Richard Carr, who's a lecturer at Anglo Ruskin, who picked up on the student element of the episode, saying axing tuition fees as a beacon for young voters whilst being a bad policy is a toughie. And actually, that was one of the things that I focused on the most in terms of education reform when I was an NUS officer. And controversially to some, it was always against opposing tuition fees and removing them in total, but that's because I wanted to do something far more progressive. So. Richard Carr, actually, for listeners, wrote a brilliant essay for The Progress magazine back in February called The Corbyn Ideology, where he looked at the thinking behind Jeremy Corbyn's leadership a bit more seriously than I think a lot of people had done for the first kind of year and a half. Um, I would recommend to listeners to go back and look at that. One other comment that we got was from Keir B., who obviously has a great Labour name, who said that the podcast is thought-provoking debate on the issues facing the country. So, Steph, why don't you pick the comment of the week which will win the Gordon Brown memoir? I think it's got to go to the solid Labour name, Keir B. I think also, you know, he's also been leaving his review on iTunes, which is fantastic and what we need more people to be doing. Brilliant. So, Keir, if you could send in your full name and your address to office at progressonline.org.uk, we will stick that book in the post for you. And our other competition was your now famous, I'm going to proclaim, <laughs> political pub quiz question. I think it's going to be infamous after this week. So the question was, which seat has elected just two MPs, both Labour, since 1945? And I tried to make it as clear as possible. So Keir, who has just won the book, did get this right, as did uh, Bill Rogers and Dan Carriad. However... There is some consternation about the answer. So Thomas Dedlin and Nick Bath both said that the answer was Huddersfield, and technically they have a point. In 1945, Joseph Malaloo was elected, and in 1950, the constituency was abolished. But in 1983, Huddersfield constituency was brought back in. Barry Shearman was elected and remains the MP to this day. So two MPs, both Labour, technically correct. Technically correct. But the answer that I've been given by, and I'd like to remind listeners at this point that I don't write the questions, Joe Oliver does, please send all abuse to him. The answer I have is Bolsover. 
but that also comes with a technicality because while Dennis Skinner has been there since 1970, Bolso has only really existed since 1950. And before that was Clay Cross, which had slightly different boundaries. Harold Neal was elected there in 1944 by election and stayed in that seat until 1950 when he then became the Bolso over MP until Dennis Skinner came in. So I'm going to send mugs to Bill and Dan. I, I think. think that's fair. Is that all right? That's fair. Okay. I just, I don't want to feel like I'm taking liberties here. I wanted to get a second opinion on it. No, I mean, you know, they got it right, technically. So. But Bill and Dan, if you could email your full names and address to office at progressonline.org.uk, we will stick those mugs in the post. If your mug hasn't arrived already, I promised this earlier in the week, they are now in the post. I was waiting on cardboard boxes and bubble wrap. And I've sourced both of those things now. So mugs from previous weeks. Always delivering, Connor. And now, <laughs> now coming to those previous winners. Please do remember to send in all of your comments and questions. Leave a review, rate and subscribe on iTunes. And Progressive Britain will be back on Tuesday next week with Richard Angel, Alison McGovern and special guest Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham to discuss rough sleeping. But thank you for joining us. And thank you, Stephanie, for joining us for the first time. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast with Connor Pope and Richard Angel. The music is When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And this episode was produced by Carolyn Crampton. Hold up. 